Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring interpretive and philosophical issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we look at the music of the celebrated early Broadway composer Cole Porter, and specifically the use of wit in his music. How is it that wit functions in music? Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. there's nothing that ruins a joke more immediately than analyzing it. The point of a joke is to move quickly to its, its moment, its, its, its moment of catharsis, its moment of realization, whatever you think the moment is. But analysis, by its very nature, is somewhat ponderous. One has to take one's time, sift through the the elements and the, and the evidence in order to examine how something works, what its effect is, and so on. And so one might think that the worst way of uh, examining or of, of experiencing wit is to examine it and to analyze it, that if there's uh, any way to be less than witty, it would be to try to analyze wit. Well, that's the danger that we're facing in today's episode. But I'm not trying to be witty in this episode. I'm trying to examine wit. And I do think that there's something worthwhile in doing so. Because just like one might examine a fastball by uh, taking video of it and then slowing down the footage and really seeing the moment of release, the wind up, and all the elements, not so that you can do it in slow motion, because after all, fastball can't be done in slow motion but so that you can understand the elements and get a feel for what they are in order to then go back to actually trying to deliver a fastball. Examining wit is something along those lines. In essence, what I'm suggesting here is that we have to slow wit down in order to see how it works. But in the act of slowing it down, of course, it becomes less witty. Well, let's take a, a, an easy enough example, right? Here's a witty saying, or at least one that one might take as witty, and that's another danger, I suppose, right? That anything that I claim here is witty, you might think is not witty. Because wit isn't something that is self-evident. It's not something that I can point to and say that is something that we would all agree is definitely witty. There are certain candidates, there are certainly candidates uh, that I might put forward that I, I would assume that we would all find witty, but there's no guarantee of it. And that's because wit is situational. For instance, if I'm in um, a moment uh, with you, right, and we're having conversation, uh, a conversation about something, and I'm trying to give you advice, something witty might be to say might be, uh, take my advice, I'm not using it, right? And in that moment, it might seem quite witty. And it has an impact that wit should have, right? Because after all, let's let's examine it for a moment. Let's slow it down and examine it. Take my advice, right? We're often, as humans, we often want to give advice to other people. We, we want them to benefit from our wisdom or we want to feel as though we're wise, which is another aspect of it. But we're often very bad at taking our own advice. And that's what this little saying, this quip, if you will, accomplishes, right? Take my advice, I'm not using it. I'm not listening to my own words of wisdom, but I'm hoping that you will. There's something both self-aggrandizing and self-effacing in that argument. Or it's not an argument, in that quip. In fact, that's precisely the point, is that it's not an argument, right? An argument takes time. An argument is something that you unfold and that you, you try to get the person to agree with. A witty statement, you don't really have to have them agree with it. It just has to light something up. It's like a spark. And sparks don't endure, right? Sparks just light up and then are gone. And perhaps they something else catches fire and then the fire is, is sustainable. But the fire is not the spark. Wit is like the spark. In fact, there's a witty saying that wit is the salt, not the food, right? That wit doesn't really, what it does is, is, it, is it creates a spark. It creates a sense of, of sudden illumination, 
but it's not sustainable. It's not knowledge. What it does is it kind of brackets off knowledge. A truly witty statement takes something that we we take for granted and it punctures it a little bit. And sometimes what it does is it reveals the truth underlying that thing that we take for granted. So if I say, take my advice, I'm not using it. We take for granted that people offer advice and that they're trying to, we're trying to guide each other. But at the same time, we're all pretty bad at taking advice, even advice given by us ourselves. And so there's a puncturing element. And like I said, there's a paradox involved. On the one hand, it's self-aggrandizing. I'm suggesting that my wisdom, my advice is worth taking. It's worth it's worth uh, taking into consideration. At the same time, since I'm not using my own advice, then that qualifies that statement. It's self-effacing. I'm not able to put into practice the things that I know are good. And wit tends to address those kinds of paradoxes or it tends to employ those kinds of paradoxes. So what wit does is it moves rather quickly in order to, to set aside uh, our assumptions about the world. and It functions in essence like a joke, right? Freud says of jokes that the point of a joke is that they are situational, that, that they have a certain amount of things that they are taking for granted, that then they puncture and they, they, they twist your view of things just enough that that shock that's involved in that twisting makes you laugh usually involuntarily. So this is what I mean by wit is, is situational, right? If, if I say that in the midst of a conversation with you, take my advice, I'm not using it, you might take that as being very witty. And we've already discussed the various ways in which that little witty statement, if you accept it as witty, uh, functions. But if every time I'm giving you advice, I say, take my advice, my advice I'm not using it, it's no longer witty. You expect me to say it. If you expect it, it's not wit. If it's rote, if it's something that I do over and over again, it's not wit. And it dulls the edge of its wittiness to use the same witty saying over and over again. And so it matters very much what you understand about me, what you understand about the world, what I understand about you and myself and the world. Uh, so it's a matter of its situation. And therefore, Wit is ultimately a branch or a, a, a subset of rhetoric because rhetoric is, uh, you know, to put it simply, the art of persuasion. And it is also situational, right? There are ways in which I might be able to convince you of something. And let's set aside whether or not the thing I'm trying to convince you of is even true or not, because after all, Rhetoric is not the same as logic, even though it, my, my rhetorical approach might employ logic. They're not the same. I'm not trying to prove, when I'm trying to convince you of something, I may be trying to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but usually that's not really a reasonable goal. Usually what I'm trying to do is persuade you in the moment, either to do something or believe something or think something or whatever. And therefore, rhetoric is situational, and it depends on all of the things that are involved in that rhetorical moment. And we want to think about what those are in just a second. And this means that what I'm going to do, which is not uh, atypical for me, is appeal to an authority that appeals to me, which is, of course, Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a book on rhetoric, um, and in some ways, it's a kind of odd book if you think of, of the various instruction manuals on rhetoric. And it might seem rather odd to approach the subject of wit in the lyrics and music of Cole Porter, which is after all what this episode is purportedly about, through an appeal to an ancient Greek philosopher and uh, in, in his book on, on rhetoric. Aristotle, for many readers, is not the wittiest of writers. Of course, we can't really know uh, whether he was witty or not, because most of what we have from Aristotle amounts to lecture notes not actual writings that he thought people would sit down and read over and over again, even though that's how we, we approach him. We read these as treatises, but they're not really. They're, they're lecture notes. Now, I can imagine a Cole Porter fan, uh, who is also somewhat aware of Aristotle, uh, who's utterly convinced 
of their hero, of Porter's uh, penchant for wit, asking themselves, do we really need Aristotle in order to better understand what should be obvious to anyone? But part of my point is that wit is not obvious to everyone. You may very well have found my example to not be witty at all, to not be a witticism in any sense. Depends on what appeals to you in this moment, in this moment. And that's precisely what I want from Aristotle. Because first of all, Aristotle is wittier than a casual reading might recognize. The, the, the witticisms are kind of hidden within the various analyses. And, and Aristotle's a great example, I think, of someone who can be witty in analysis. That analysis is not necessarily the killer of wit. And second, and more importantly, Aristotle has a lot to tell us about the moment of persuasion or the situation of persuasion that I think clarifies what is at stake in the work of Cole Porter and illuminates the role of wit in what ultimately amounts to staged moments of persuasion or, or, or situations of persuasion. All right, so let's start there. Why am I saying moments of persuasion? Am I just being vague? Do I just mean the moment when I'm trying to persuade you of something? After all, rhetoric is the art of persuasion, and therefore a manual on rhetoric uh, or a set of lecture notes on rhetoric in the case of Aristotle would typically instruct the reader or listener in perfecting the art of persuasion, obviously, right? We would expect, and in most treatises on rhetoric, especially ancient Roman treatises, which there were quite a few uh, ancient Roman treatises on rhetoric, um, and medieval treatises and so on, right? Right up to today, there's still plenty of books about how to persuade somebody of your point of view. And most of those books and, and treatises, they include a set of tips and techniques that we could then employ to persuade others of our point of view. And some of that is indeed in Aristotle. But as is characteristic of his manner of thinking, there's more here. And that more is not what we typically find in other rhetorical treatises. And moreover, that more, that surplus, is what serves as the basis, in my opinion at least, for Aristotle's insights into rhetoric. He seems to be getting at an underlying truth concerning the nature of human discourse and human relationships maintained through, to put it simply, talking to each other. Most of the way that we maintain relationships with each other is through speech. So speech is a, a medium that we employ in order to maintain, to build, and sometimes to destroy relationships with each other. So what I think Aristotle does that other writers don't do is he not only offers tips, but what he does is he excavates the situation, the rhetorical moment, the situation of, of persuasion. He tries to get at the basis of what is happening when I'm talking to you, as I am now, and I'm trying to persuade you of a certain point of view. What's at stake here? So for Aristotle, at least, rhetoric is not the art of finding or even conveying knowledge, at least not exactly. It's the art of Persuasion. And persuasion means that there are three elements to it, what he calls uh, three means of persuasion. The, the Greek word is pistes, right? So there's through the speaker, and for him, that's he, he terms that ethos, that what we are looking for in a speaker, if, if you want to persuade someone of something, then you have to present yourself as credible on that topic or in that moment. If you come across as oily and, and uh, uh, manipulative, then you're probably not going to persuade the person that's listening. So that's one element. The next element is, of course, through the hearer, the, the listener, right? And that's what Aristotle terms pathos. That's your emotional state as a listener. If you're angry and I'm trying to persuade you to, uh, to I don't know, think kindly of a, a person that you're that has recently angered you, that might be a harder uh, hill to climb, right? Because your emotional state is going to impact how you hear things. And then finally, the argument itself, right? Through the argument, um, where we're seemingly trying to prove what is true, or at least what we should take as true in that moment. And that's what he terms logos, which is the Greek word for rationality and word and so on. So we have these three elements. Which, of course, makes sense because those are the three elements that are involved in the rhetorical situation. There's someone speaking, trying to persuade, and that's the credibility of the spear, the ethos. 
Um, and then there's someone that's listening, that's to be persuaded, that that is coming into that situation, not in, entirely innocent, right? That they have um, a certain standing in the world at that moment, an emotional standing in the world. They feel a certain way. And then, of course, there's the argument itself. And all these three things are, are at play in the rhetorical situation, according to, to Aristotle. And that we can't just say, well, that's a good argument, and therefore everyone should be persuaded by it, right? That's a difference between, uh, at least in Aristotle's opinion, a really successful lawyer and a lawyer who just, you know, really knows the law well. You might really know the law well and be able to lay out a very good argument, but you can still fail to persuade the jury or the judge or whatever, that there's something else, or there are two other things that go on in the moment of persuasion. There's your presentation of yourself, not just your presentation of the argument, but you as a credible. After all, when we're being persuaded of something, it's not something that we, we take for granted, right? It's not like someone has to persuade me that I'm sitting in my room right now uh, talking into a microphone. I know that's what I'm doing. You don't have to persuade me of it. If you're persuading me of something, then it's something that I'm not already taking for granted, although it, uh, the rhetorical moment, of course, builds on some things that I might be taking for granted. In fact, it has to, right? And you might shift that ground a bit, uh, and that makes the rhetorical moment that much more difficult. If, if I'm working against something that you take for granted, then I have to shift it so that I move our common ground somewhere else so that I can um, assail or, or qualify uh, the, the assumption that I want you to change. So you have all three of these elements in play. It's not just the argument. It's also how I present myself and what state you're in. Now, Aristotle goes on to, to talk about wit at one point in particular, but notice that there's already a, a lot of things at play here. And, and this is part of what makes Aristotle's book on rhetoric compelling, but also somewhat controversial. People are still trying to figure out exactly what he's up to here, exactly what he's, he's about. Because after all, rhetoric gets a bad rap. Because if I'm trying to persuade you of something, that doesn't mean, as I've already said several times, that it's true. It just means I'm trying to persuade you of it. And so rhetoric is also something that people who are dishonest would use in order to persuade you of something bad. But this is Aristotle we're talking about. One of the great writers on logic and one of the great writers on ethics, right? I mean, after all, the the way in which we formulate syllogisms and, and logical arguments in general, uh, a lot of that comes out of Aristotle. And the Nicomachean Ethics is one of the great celebrated books on ethics, on how we should behave in order to to further human virtue. That's, uh, that's ultimately his view of ethics, that what we want to do is foster human virtues and, and, and as far as is possible within this life, perfect those human virtues. Well, rhetoric, especially if you are, as he was, a student of Plato, you might look rather askance at rhetoric because rhetoric doesn't seem to be grounded in those values. Rhetoric seems almost like a free-for-all. I can take anything, no matter how evil, no matter how questionable, and I could try to persuade you of it. And then that, that uh, suggests that I have a certain rhetorical power that I can bring to bear. And it doesn't matter whether I'm using it for good or evil. But that's, that's, I think that's a wrong reading of Aristotle. I think that's why Aristotle, there's a sort of implicit argument uh, throughout this book against Plato, because Plato was so dismissive of rhetoric. For Plato, everything should go back to dialectic or logic, right? That I should be proving things um, uh, through recourse to rationality. And the only reason I use rhetoric is because not everyone is as smart as I am, and therefore I have to convince the uh, feeble-minded of things that they ought to be able to figure out for themselves. Plato doesn't think very highly of rhetoric or rhetoricians. But Aristotle seems to. Aristotle sees it as a very essential part of human existence. And I think Aristotle's right. I usually do. Because in this case, a huge, a major part of the way that we foster and continue and, and, and preserve relationships with each other and really even with the world is the way that we talk about the world, both to each other and to ourselves. And we do a lot of rhetoric with ourselves, of course. We try to convince ourselves of the right 
course of action. Whenever you're you're thinking to yourself, well, should I do this or that? What you're doing is you're laying out a rhetorical argument. The very fact that you don't know for certain what you should do shows you that it's not a purely logical argument. So rhetoric is not only something that's useful, it's essential to our status as human beings, as beings that can't know everything, ever, in a world that's constantly changing. And so rhetoric isn't merely some, a tool, it's a basic condition of being human. And that these three elements are at play, right? That, that the person that's trying to persuade is presenting not only an argument, which is one element, but also a way of being that we're hoping is credible. And that the listener is coming to that argument or to that, that, um, that persuasive speech with a certain emotional makeup at that moment. And so if I'm in a good mood, I mean, think of it this way, right? If, if a judge, let's say, uh, is well disposed toward the um, defendant, he or she is much more likely to be lenient. Whereas if the defendant comes in and presents him or herself uh, in an egregious manner, might be more likely to give a stiffer punishment. Now, we might say in the abstract, that's unfair. The punishment, the, the judgment should be about the, the situation, about the crime, about the act, not about the person. And yet, where do you think extenuating circumstances comes from? Where do you think that, that looking at someone's character and whether or not they're likely to commit this crime again, that becomes a major part of sentencing. So we recognize in some way that a huge part of what we are has to do with how we present ourselves. And that's a form of rhetoric. Now, all of this seems like we're way far away from Cole Porter. But what we want to turn to next is seeing how Porter's wit conveys both a, a mode of being through these songs, trying to persuade us of certain questions of assumption and so on, and of course addresses your emotional state as a listener. And we have to return, of course, to this issue of wit. So let's do that next. Aristotle's treatise on rhetoric, he's talking about various ages, and they're basically their dispositions. He's getting at this whole issue of ethos and pathos, right? Whether they're the person that's trying to persuade or the person that's uh, meant to be persuaded, your your stage in life matters, according to, to Aristotle. And his his argument's fairly straightforward, uh, that young people are forward-looking, they're, they're more concerned with the future than the past, because of course the, the future is, there's so much of it still ahead of them. Um, elderly people are more concerned with the past, they recognize that they're, they're moving toward death, and therefore they're more concerned with what went on before. And people in the prime of their life, uh, in the, the sort of middle of their life, are more flexible, in essence. They're concerned with both, with a balance at best between the past and the future. Now, at the end of chapter 12, where he's describing youth, he has what I think is a rather witty statement, and it's a definition of wit. And the definition is, wit is uh, educated insolence. Wit is educated is insolence. 
Now let's take that apart for a minute, right? Insolence. When we say someone is insolent, when someone's been fired or, or reprimanded for insolence, that means that they're being rude and disrespectful. We don't usually think of wit in that way. If I say something witty, like take my advice, I'm not using it, I'm not being disrespectful to you, right? But notice it's educated insolence. Now, what is it that disrespect does? If I'm being disrespectful, then I'm not buying in to whatever is the proper mode of decorum of the moment, right? So if I'm expected to behave a certain way, let's just take a simple example. If I'm expected uh, when I go into a local uh, grocery store to have shoes on and a shirt and I come in barefoot and, um, and without a shirt, then I'm being disrespectful. Now, you could say, well, that's not, uh, what right do they have to tell me how to dress? Fine, whatever. But what I'm trying to suggest is that the moment of disrespect here is that there's a certain set of expectations and I'm defying it. Now, you might think I'm moving the goalposts. I don't think I am. Respect is a, is a form of acknowledging the set of assumptions in that situation. And so even though you may not personally mean for it to be offensive, that you came in without shoes and, and a shirt, that doesn't mean that you're not being disrespectful. Now, you may think that uh, the, the grocery store is not worthy of respect. Fine, whatever. That's not the point of the argument here, right? The point is that we can think of insolence or disrespect as not necessarily being offensive. That disrespect and offense are not necessarily the same thing. And so an educated disrespect is what, what Aristotle uses the definition of wit. That what, what wit does is it shows a certain amount of erudition, a certain amount of knowledge, and, and not just that, right? That it also has to do with, uh, and here the terms can show up in the adjective, uh, an element of quick-wittedness. If someone's quick-witted, they're thinking fast on their feet, right? And something occurs to them in the moment, and they're able to, to light up that spark of wit within that moment. Right. Uh, as opposed to to what is sometimes referred to as staircase wit, where you've walked away from the conversation and then you're like, oh, I wish I'd said that. Right. But really, staircase wit is not wit because wit is in a moment. That's why Aristotle's reading, I think, is so interesting. He, he situates the moment of rhetoric and wit is one element of that. So educated insolence here, <laughs> it seems to me suggests that what the, the witty person is doing is she is, is alert to both the moment as, as given in the conversation, as it's unfolding in the conversation, knows the right thing to say at the right moment, but also has a certain skeptical attitude toward the world. That's what wit is, right? Uh, think, think of, for instance, someone we'll talk about in a moment, Dorothy Parker, who was uh, really well known for her wit. When um, former president Calvin Coolidge died uh, and she was informed of it, she said, well, how, does, how did anyone know that he was dead, right? It's not nice. That is disrespectful. But it's witty. She's suggesting that his personality was, uh, was so dull, was so uninteresting that the difference between him being alive and being dead was almost immaterial, or at least not, not noticeable. Uh, and that's a good example, I think, of disrespect, right? Uh, and I don't think that all wit is that kind of disrespect. But all wit seems to at least be disrespectful toward the norms of thought. That's the point of wit, is that it, it's illuminating something that we take for granted and showing that maybe we shouldn't. It's a certain skeptical attitude toward the world. It's a recognition that things might be and perhaps should be otherwise, and that the ways in which we do things might not always be the best way to do them. But at the same time, there is this element of erudition, of education, that we tend to think of wit not as, the, not as mere sarcasm, right? Although there is a sarcastic wit, but, but sarcasm and wit are not the same thing right? Uh, the, that mere sarcasm has a kind of bluntness to it and a kind of uh, lack of forethought that, that wit, even sarcastic wit, shouldn't have. That wit involves a, um, an ability to separate oneself from normative assumptions, 
And we tend to think of that as an educated ability, right? That's what we term objectivity. Objectivity is, is our ability to separate ourselves from the situation of, of the world, right? We can look at, we're, we're bracketing off our emotions, our interests, and so on, taking an objective view. And so, therefore, wit is a kind of funny approach to objectivity, an ability to bracket off the world as we assume it to be in order to evaluate that. And that's, that's that element of skepticism. Now, let's, let's start with a good, I think, example of Cole Porter's wit, right? We're going to look in this segment at just one song, just one of those things, one of my favorite songs by, by Cole Porter. And in fact, we're really only concerned with the opening of it with the verse, right? As is the case with a lot of early Broadway tunes, the song can basically be divided into a verse and a refrain or, or a chorus, if you prefer. Um, the verse is usually less um, musically engaging or memorable. Not always. This verse is, I think, in some ways quite accomplished musically. Um, but it's not the it's not the part of the song that most people think of when they're thinking of the song, right? It's not going to have the words "just one of those things," for instance. That'll be in the refrain. Now, one of the points of my argument here is that we can't just take the words by themselves. But let's start by doing that, right? Uh, here are the words to the verse: As Dorothy Parker once said to her boyfriend, "Fare thee well." As Columbus announced when he knew he was bounced, it was swell, Isabel, swell. As Abelard said to Eloise, don't forget to drop a line to me, please. As Juliet cried in her Romeo's ear, Romeo, why not face the fact, my dear? Okay, so there's the verse. Now notice that there are four, um, or five, uh, not four, uh, allusions here. There are references right? And that they all require a certain amount of, of education. Probably we all at least recognize the Romeo and Juliet um, illusion, but certainly I don't think anyone would uh, suggest that some awareness of Shakespeare isn't part of our educational makeup, right? It's part of what we think of as being a cultured person. Now, so all of these are references for the culture. Dorothy Parker, uh, if you don't already know, was a herself a very witty writer, um, and she had a rather complicated romantic life, right? Um, she had many lovers uh, and, and a few marriages under her belt and so on. And she had a kind of, like I said, a witty and wry sense of humor. She's the one that made the comment about Calvin Coolidge and, uh, and made several comments about her own sexuality and, and so on. Um, that first line isn't necessarily super witty in and of itself, but it's referencing someone witty. As Dorothy Parker once said to her boyfriend fairly well, because she said goodbye to several boyfriends, right? So right from the beginning, we get the sense that this is a um, song that's qualifying the, the fidelity of love or the permanence of love. After all, it's a song called Just One of Those Things, right? A, a little bit of... Um, of vernacular, of, of, of common language, meaning that it's, in a sense, neither here nor there. It's just one of those things. The next line, as Columbus announced when he knew he was bounced, it was swell, Isabel, swell, right? That he's, he's being kicked out of court, I guess, in, in this scenario. Um, and again, this is a reference that, that probably most people would recognize, certainly Columbus, but maybe not Isabel, right? Who's the, the Queen of Spain that, that paid for him to go on his, his mission. Um, then the third one is perhaps the most obscure for, for most people, at least. As Abelard said to Eloise, don't forget to drop a line to me, please. Abelard was a philosopher and a monk. And he was in a letter um, exchanging relationship with this woman, Eloise, that some people felt went too far and that it, where he would say some things that were perhaps sexually unbecoming of a monk, uh, he felt that as well and castrated himself, right? So there's a lot built into this one line that if you just hear, as Abelard said to Eloise, don't forget to drop a line to me, please. Uh, you could tell there's distance there. Write to me sometime is basically what that's saying. But if you know the reference, there's a lot more involved there. The suspicion of sexuality, the, the, the uh, to some extent, hating oneself for one's sexuality. And then the last line, of course, would be familiar to just about anyone. Uh, as Juliet cried in her Romeo's ear, Romeo, why not face the fact, my dear? 
Because if there's one thing that they don't do in Romeo and Juliet, it's facing facts. So there's an irony there. Now, again, I recognize that I'm slowing the, the wit way down, right, in order to analyze it. But the, what I'm trying to suggest is there's a lot at play in these four references. That what they're, they're doing is creating a set of basically case studies in breakups or in failed relationships. Because this is going to be a song that's about a, a, a relationship that fails, that didn't last, and yet that is, is being held on to, at least within the confines of the song in some fashion. Now, as I said, it's not sufficient just to look at the, the lyrics themselves. The point here is the way in which they're set. That, that lyrics aren't just words that we read in there and get the full sense of the song from that. Rather, their functionality as lyrics is as a museum, as an element within the musical fabric. And they can only really be understood as lyrics, as opposed to simply as words, when they're in the context of that. So let's listen to um, the verse in its entirety with me singing it. And apologies in advance, it's not good, but I need the uh, I, I need you to hear the setting in order to make some of the points that follow. So here we go, the verse to Just One of Those Things by Cole Porter. As Dorothy Parker once said to a boyfriend fairly well As Columbus announced when he knew he was bound I want to take you through this a bit because I don't think you get the wit by just reading the lyrics. In fact, I don't even think of them as lyrics until they're set to music. They're just words on a page. But what makes this effective is how they function as lyrics. And lyrics here, as I said before, are a museum. They're an element of the musical fabric. Now, in one sense, the setting here is very straightforward. Notice we start in F major and we end on a dominant chord of A, which is pointing to D minor, and the refrain is going to begin in D minor and end in F major. So in essence, there's a kind of palindromic effect where the verse begins in F and ends by pointing to D minor. The chorus or refrain begins in D minor but ends in F. And this is typical Cole Porter stuff. He, he likes the idea of minor and major slipping into each other constantly as a sort of, perhaps a sort of metaphor for love, right? That the, the sour parts, the unhappy parts of love are uh, intrinsic to the happier parts and vice versa. All right. In one sense, this is a very straightforward verse melodically and harmonically, right? We start with an F chord and that A is up top. Right? So we had this. And then there's this huge leap, which we'll come back to in a moment. But notice that basically what's happening here is, um, is we have an F up top, uh, an A up top on top of the um, F. And it's kind of implied in all those opening chords and then comes back at a uh, a, a boyfriend, we hear that F with that A up top again, and then finally it moves through the G to the F. So in other words, in one sense, this is a super, this first line is super straightforward, right? We just have A, G, to F. But when you see how that basic architecture gets expanded, it's it's quite remarkable, right? We have this, this opening leap, and then this, with that chromatic twist, and then a leap down to the... And there's that same harmony again. So, so we feel like we've moved all over the place, but really we've gone nowhere. That's sort of a metaphor for relationships too, right? That they've become... Uh, they become kind of stable in a way, which can be good and can be bad. It can be stultifying or it can be um, 
security. Uh, it's one or the other, perhaps. But but then underneath it all, is something straightforward, right? I mean, love relationships are not new to the world. Uh, people have been falling in love and dealing with relationships probably almost as long as there have been people, perhaps as long as there have been people, right? Um, and yet we complicate them in all sorts of ways. To me, that's part of what's happening here. She's not simply saying fairly well, which in one sense you might think, is an easy enough thing for Dorothy Parker since she had many love affairs, right? And yet she talks about the problems of, of giving one's heart to someone else and that it's much more complicated than it might seem. And the music seems to be um, uh, kind of representing that through its twists and turns, even though underneath it all is something very straightforward. So we get this... And then we're right back here. And we resolve it. And then we start off the same kind of, of thing. In fact, at first it's the same exact thing with the Columbus line. Right? The same kind of motion here. And then, But now it changes. We go even higher. But notice that's also a linear pattern, right? Once we get up, at first we're on that A. But then we jump up to this high F to E, D, C. So that's just the same kind of linear pattern, just in a, a different set of pitches, right? But again, this linearity, this straightforward linearity, that it gets complicated with leaps and chromaticism and so on. And that, that continues into the next part with the Abelard, right? Where we have big leap, chromaticism, but then notice we get right back up into that same register. But again, big leap. Then the same register. Big leap. And then this descending thing that's that's on the surface, right? But all that is really also is just a linear pattern. We have that that Abelard as Abelard said to Eloise, said just down, don't forget to send a line to me, please. As uh, Juliet cried to her Romeo's ear, um, and then we go back up. But we, we pick up again where we left off, right? Because you can hear that D, C, B flat, A, G. We sort of stick there for a bit. But then we come down again. And there's the note we were waiting for, that F, that comes down to a E. And you don't need to, to worry about, you know, what notes what if, if you're not necessarily hearing that. The point here is that there is this underlying structure of linearity, of straightforwardness. Right, that fits very well uh, as a transition between F major and D minor, and those are of course closely related keys. They're called relative keys, right? Because they they share the same pitches more or less uh, overall. They share the same pitches and, and many of the same harmonies, right? So they're very closely related. But of course, we have different affective associations with those keys. That major is stable and and more or less placid, sometimes happy, whereas minor can be sad or tragic or depressing. Or uh, it's it's the more marked of the keys, right? It's the one that you notice is more emotionally invested. And here we're shifting from um, the placid and the straightforward to the more emotionally invested or fraught. Uh, and and that uh, that gets worked out with the the structural linearity being complicated through all these leaps and chromaticisms. Now, let's return to Aristotle for a second here. If Aristotle's correct and we have three elements that go on in the rhetorical situation, and if I'm correct, and we we should see this um, verse and and really all music, all all uh, lyrics as museum as creating a kind of rhetorical situation. Then we have a couple of questions we should ask, right? Because remember, there are the three elements, according to Aristotle. There's the message itself, the logos, the message itself, the argument, such as it is, the rhetorical argument. Then there's the, um, the ethos, 
the character of the person speaking, and then there's the pathos, the, the emotional um, makeup of the listener, of us in this sense. Now, of course, when we say us, I don't necessarily mean however you're feeling at this moment. You might be elated at this moment. You might be bored. I hope not, but you might be. Uh, you, you might be sad. I also hope not, but you might be, right? I don't mean that. I mean that the song, songs in general have a kind of ideal listener that they're projecting. When you're listening uh, to the song, let's say... Um, uh, alone again naturally, right? The the um, O'Sullivan song, uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan, who, uh, about suicide. You might be a very happy person in, in, in a happy mood and you're listening to that song, but you're not listening to it correctly if you're not at least imaginatively placing yourself as the listener intended by that song, which would be someone sad, right? And melancholic and, and perhaps uh, perhaps even suicidal. So those are the things that we want to ask here, right? If we're going to have an Aristotelian understanding of this verse. What do we know about the speaker? What do we know about the ideal listener? And what do we know about the argument? Well, the, the, the speaker here is clearly someone who is erudite, someone who is educated, right? Uh, and not only who knows these references, but feels comfortable um, uh, making them and, and, and feels assured that you're going to understand, which already shows us something about uh, the ideal listener to this song, right? And remember that what we're talking about here with the speaker, with the, the ethos of the, the persona of the, the, the speaker within the song, what we're talking about is not just the words, of course, but the way in which they're presented through the melody. So it's being communicated through this song that there is a kind of character to this person who is able to distance him or herself to some degree from the hotness of the relationship in the, in the refrain, uh, the, the bridge of the refrain. The narrator says that uh, we should have known that this the romance was too hot not to cool down, right? It was too hot to last. It, it flamed, it, it sparked up. It was this this wonderful moment, but it was too hot to last. And we're getting this sense that he or she is removed from that hotness now, from the heat of the of the relationship, and is able to look at it not only somewhat objectively, but through the lens of all these references of, of Dorothy Parker, uh, Columbus and Isabel, uh, Abelard and Eloise, and then, of course, Romeo and Juliet. And notice that each of these are pairs. It's Dorothy Parker and her boyfriend, who is anonymous, but still mentioned as a boyfriend. Columbus and Isabel, not the court, right? And not, not Ferdinand, but Isabel. So there's sort of an implied uh, love relationship there as well. Abelard and Eloise, of course, and Romeo and Juliet, of course. So the, the person that's speaking to us here is someone who, on the one hand, is removed from all of it and is able to, to make these um, quasi-objective allusions, to place it within a framework of this is stuff that goes on all the time. There's nothing special happening here. And yet, with all the twists and turns of that melody, that the underlying architecture of it is very straightforward. This, this is, and, and that says something about the argument being made too, right? That this is stuff that happens all the time. It's no big deal. It's just one of those things. It's no big deal. But it doesn't feel like no big deal. And that's what that twisting and turning is doing, right? It doesn't feel like no big deal. It feels, uh, it, it feels like our guts are being twisted. Like something, something is, uh, has gone awry uh, through this breakup, even if it is something that happens all the time. Because we know, and that's what we always tell people, right? When they're suffering from, from relationship foibles and, and problems. Oh, this kind of thing happens all the time. It's not like this is only happening to you. But at this moment, it feels like it's only happening to you, right? And the, it, it, the, knowing that everyone else suffers doesn't always help with your suffering, or at least not for all of us. And I don't think it's supposed to for this narrator or for the ideal listener. Now, how do we construct an ideal listener? We construct the ideal listener, first of all, by taking for granted that they're going to recognize certain things. And it doesn't matter that you personally may or may not know who Abelard and Eloise is. The song assumes you do know, right? The song is, is making this witty reference, and wit is communicated only if the other person gets that 
that reference, right? Now, that doesn't mean that if you didn't know who Abelard and, and Eloise were that you just can't understand the song. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying that the song projects the assumption that you do know. And so even if you don't, you're supposed to feel like you do, if you understand what I mean by that. Right. And that there's a kind of inevitability about the whole thing. That's that's part of what's interesting about the Romeo line. Right. That, that it starts off chromatic and then it just descends basically from a C all the way down to an E. Um, and that C is, is unstable. It's a non chord tone. And so there's this sense of the inevitable slippage into uh, the, the facing of the fact, as the line says, Romeo, why not face the fact, my dear? So the ideal listener here is one that gets the references, but also feels the emotional pain of those leaps and those chromatic um, moments, right? The twisting and turning, the serpentine element of it is all recognized by the ideal listener. And all of that has to do with an argument, an argument that's not a logical argument, an argument that states basically, yes, this happens all the time, but when it's happening to you, it feels as though it's totally new, and yet a source of great pain. And there's an element of wit to that. Wit takes your assumptions and it twists a certain part of it, right? It says, it, it, it lights up this little spark of the paradox that you live all the time. That relationships like this often fail. Everyone experiences failure of this sort. And yet when you experience it, it feels like your entire world is upturned. So it's, it's something that happens every day and yet uh, is cataclysmic.